deliverance at the Red Sea is the greatest example of God's power in the Old Testament. There's nothing that God does greater for people than what he does at the Red Sea. In fact, for ages, thousands of years, when Israel would try to remind each other of their God and of his power and of his ability to deliver, they would look back to this event and they would remind each other of their God who parted the Red Sea and led their forefathers through on dry land. But this deliverance would not be God's greatest act in history. It pointed forward to another deliverance that would be even greater. This deliverance of millions of people was a foreshadow of a deliverance of billions of people that would ultimately come through Jesus Christ and through Him alone. Almost everything that happened in the Old Testament was meant to be a foreshadow of the coming Christ. And this morning as we finish our study on the Red Sea and continue moving forward through the book of Exodus, I want us to look at what I would call four maybe final foreshadows that we see in the storyline of Exodus here in the Red Sea. The first this morning is that typologically the Red Sea foreshadows deliverance through death. The Red Sea is a type of death. In fact, if you remember, that's exactly what the children of Israel said as soon as they got hemmed up against the Red Sea. They said to Moses, what you bring us out here to die? This place, the Red Sea, has become the place where we are going to die. They said it would have been better if we just could have been slaves back in Egypt. But now we're here. There's nowhere to go. We cannot continue our journey. There's nowhere else to go. We are surrounded by the enemy, and the only path ahead of us is the sea. And the sea was this thing that symbolized their death. Death had always been, and for those who are not gods, still is. Death had always been the worst of the worst. The greatest and worst uh, result of sin in the world, death. People are terrified of death. And I will say, for those who are not Christians, they should be terrified of death. God says he's going to take this very thing that that symbolizes death, this very thing that the Israelites thought would ultimately be their destruction, and it would become the vehicle through which they would be delivered. The Red Sea, which looked like death to them, became the very source of their deliverance. It is a picture of deliverance through two deaths. First of all, the death of Christ. Look what Hebrews 2.14 says. Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, 
that is the devil. We see that Jesus destroyed the power of death, destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. And how did he destroy him? Through death. Think about that. The Israelites thought that the Red Sea was going to be their end. It looked gloom and doom. But there was another Red Sea moment coming down the road that this pictured that was a whole lot more gloom and doom than this event in Exodus 14. There Jesus hung on the cross. His disciples had abandoned him. The crowds were no longer there. The only crowds that were surrounding Jesus were those who were mocking him. As he hung there, blameless on the cross, bleeding nearly at the point of death, finally breathed his last and said, it is finished. It looked like it was all over, folks. But it was through death that Jesus would bring our deliverance. God would take the very thing that looked like our enemy and he would use it to be the very thing that would lead us to him. Our God is all wise. Our God is all powerful. Our God is all sufficient. Now note, just as at the Red Sea that Jesus He did not avoid death. He did not go around death. He went through death. And it is through his death that we find our deliverance. There is another death that finds its great meaning as we study the Red Sea, and that is the physical death of the believer. Now look at Exodus 14.22. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, look at this term, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So not only did the Red Sea not have power over Israel, it became a defense to them. The Red Sea was protecting them on the left and on the right. So it is with death for the believer, brother and sister. Death, as we as God's sons and daughters pass through that portal of death, we are literally rescued from the enemy. We are literally leaving this land and going to see him face to face. Recently, I've been listening to a song It says, you can't tell me I'm dying when I cross into the promised land. You can't tell me that I'm dying when I see Jesus face to face. That's not death. That's life. And for the believer, Christ has destroyed the very sting of death. Death has literally become the vehicle through which we travel to get to the promised land where there is no sorrow, no death, no sickness, and no tears. I'm going to tell you something, folks. This is a truth that we have lost sight of in modern-day Christianity. The truth is that most Christians are terrified to die. We do everything we can to keep from dying. Because we don't want to die. And I'm not suggesting that we should hope for death. 
But I am declaring this morning that for the child of God, the power of death has been destroyed. And that our greatest hope, our greatest reward, our greatest life is the one that's on the other side of death. And we see this picture in the Red Sea that deliverance, it actually comes through death. Now, I want you to notice something about the Egyptians in this storyline. In Hebrews eleven twenty nine, 29, here's what it says. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Here's the great lesson about death. Death is deliverance for the sons and daughters of God. But it is absolute destruction for everyone else. You cannot try to pass through that portal called death if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible calls this this eternal hell, this never-ending place, it literally calls it the second death. It's an odd way to say it, but it's a death that never ends. It's as death as death can be, as dark as dark can be, as horrible as horrible can be, as painful as pain can be, as worse as your mind could ever possibly fathom, and it is forever. And the truth is that for those who have not been born again, for those who are not truly saved, blood-bought, redeemed of God, death is a horrible event in their life. It is the end of any last chance to ever get right with God. And I plead with you this morning, if you are not truly saved, if you are not truly following the Lord Jesus Christ, I plead with you to turn your heart to Him this very morning. The victory over death. The victory through death is only for those who have faith in God. That sea was death for Egypt. That sea was death for Pharaoh. Number two this morning, the next foreshadow we see is that from an evangelical standpoint, like from a gospel standpoint, evangelically, the Red Sea foreshadows judgment before death. So I want you to get your mind working with me again. It's been a little while since we've been in this study. What happened the night before the Red Sea? The Passover lamb and the death of the firstborn. We spent a lot of time studying that in this particular sermon series. You remember the study of the Passover lamb and how In so many ways, the Passover lamb was a foreshadow of the coming Christ who would be the lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. On that night, judgment came. If you'll remember, if you were part of the sermon series, you'll remember Israel was judged too. It wasn't that Israel was sinless. It wasn't that Israel could wipe their hands clean of any guilt. Israel was guilty too, and punishment had to come to them. And punishment did come to them in the form of what? The Passover lamb. 
And so judgment came to their houses in the form of a substitute, which pointed forward to Jesus. Judgment happens the very next day. We see them passing through this thing that represents death. Judgment first, and then the death. Now, here's why that matters, folks. Because no matter how you look at it, you're going to be judged. We're all going to be judged. I don't care who you are. You're going to be judged, and you will either be judged before death or after. Evangelically, the message is this. You better find your judgment in the Lamb of God before you pass through death. We see the message here that God is painting this picture that as far as his people are concerned, as far as his sons and daughters are concerned, in his eyes and in his sight, they are judged first before coming to death. Now, why does that matter? Because in Hebrews 11.29, here's what we are told. Excuse me. Hebrews 9.27, here's what we are told. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You see, for the sinner, we read of a different order. For the sinner, we read of the order that death happens and then comes judgment. God says, not so for my people. I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters. If you are saved here this morning, I'm going to tell you where you were judged. You were judged at the cross of Christ. When I die and I stand before God, the reality is that I was already judged when Jesus hung there on a cross and shed his blood for me. If you are saved here this morning, you were judged when Jesus died on Calvary for you, when his blood dripped down that cross, and when he breathed his his last breath, I was judged there. You were judged there. And because we were already judged then, we're not going to be judged after death. Thank God that for the children of God, judgment comes first before death. And evangelically, That is the message to the sinner this morning. There must be a judgment for all of your rebellion and your anarchy against God. There must be a judgment for that. And either you will pay that judgment forever once you die. Because it's appointed a man wants to die and then comes a judgment. Or you will find your judgment completely and fully satisfied in Christ Jesus. But if you do not turn your heart to him before you die, if you do not turn your heart to him before that awful day comes where you would stand before God and give an account for your sins, if you do not turn your heart to Jesus, you will one day stand face to face with God and be judged for your sins. The Red Sea is this foreshadow that as far as God's people are concerned, judgment happened first. So once we pass through death, we have nothing to worry about. Number three, doctrinally this morning, the Red Sea is a foreshadow of our baptism into Christ. This is really a difficult point for me to feel like I teach with any type of clarity. So I'm going to take some time to uh, 
explain what I mean and what the Bible means when we use the word baptism into Christ. In fact, one of the passages I'm going to show you later is that the word baptized and the word union are used interchangeably. So to be baptized into Christ means to be one with Him. If you think about baptism from a biblical point of view, I don't want to get into the details of making me mad this morning if you're not a believer of full submersion, but baptism literally is full submersion. It is. You can argue with me about it afterwards if you want. But it's what it literally means. It means to be submerged. And with that in mind, think about this for a moment. When when you are baptized, you are literally entirely surrounded by the thing into which you are baptized. And when you come up out of that water, that tank, that river, that lake, that pond, whatever it may be, you are still wet head to toe with the very thing you are baptized into. It is a symbolic representation of what God means when he says we are baptized into Christ. The Red Sea is this great big picture of everybody, all of God's children, being baptized into his family. And there's only one way. While every person individually had to make that decision to take that step and move forward, the fact is they also did it collectively. There weren't a lot of paths. That's what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make. It wasn't as if God made, you know, two million little tiny paths with water on each side and everybody had their own path to which they got to the other side. Nope. God parted the water and everybody went through the exact same path on the exact same ground. It is a picture that the only way to God is through Jesus, that we are baptized into Christ, and unless you are baptized into Christ, there is no way for you to be saved. Repeatedly, the New Testament uses this term, in Christ, through Christ. It even speaks of Christ being in us. It's a union that's it's difficult to even comprehend really how complete it is. On one hand, I'm in Christ. On the other hand, he is in me. What God is trying to communicate to us is that the way of salvation is being completely and totally in Christ. So it's not so much what I do. It's more about to... to keep the wording here, it's not about what I do, it's about where I am. Either I am in the world or I am in Christ. And all of us, we must have that same baptism if we are to be saved. Let's look at a couple passages this morning. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. 
I'm going to leave that passage up there for a little bit because I want you to see it. I have been crucified. The Bible puts this, this extreme emphasis on me identifying with Christ. So what Christ did, I did. Where Christ went, I went. You will see this theme over and over and over and over and over again, especially when you read the New Testament epistles, where the, where the Apostle Paul is writing to churches and trying to help churches understand their faith. Over and over and over and over again is this idea that you have been, I have been crucified with Christ. So when he did it, I did it. This is the whole theme of Romans chapter 6. When Jesus died, I died. When he buried, I was buried. When he rose, I rose. I am in him. I am baptized into him, and therefore, because I am in him, what he experienced, God now sees as my experience. Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Can you see it this morning that true Christianity, it's all about being in Christ. And this is what the, the, the great baptism at the Red Sea represents, that we must go down into the baptism of God, that we must be part of that great baptism. There's not a bunch of ways. There's only one way. This is why Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so the question this morning is, are you in Christ? Not do you go to church, not do you pay your tithes, not do you serve in missions? Not you, do you do this good thing? Do you do that good thing? Not can you quote scripture? The question is, are you in Christ? Because that's what matters. When you are truly in Christ, you will do most of those things I just named. But we do them out of a heart of thankfulness and gratitude that God has saved a wretch like me and that he has taken me and baptized me into his family and, and he's allowed what Jesus did to atone for my sins, how could I not live for him with a heart of gratitude? The whole motive is different when we do it the right way. But you can do all of those things and not really be in him. This morning, have you truly placed your faith in Christ? Are you truly in Him? And fourth this morning, the final foreshadow is practically, the Red Sea foreshadows God's absolute sufficiency. And I hope that I, I can leave you encouraged this morning with this truth that God is absolutely sufficient in every way to meet every need that you could ever face. So, right? Moses did not know 
what was going to happen at the Red Sea when God appeared to him at the burning bush. In fact, Moses didn't even know about the Red Sea to the best of our knowledge. The Bible does not record that God told Moses, I'm going to lead you to the Red Sea and everyone's going to think they're going to die. All that God told Moses was that he was going to use him to lead the people out. Think about that for a moment. God told him he was going to lead the people out, but didn't really tell him all the hardship he was going to face along the way. Not all of it. And they get there, and it's a wilderness. There's not mountains. There's not valleys. There's no way they can get the high ground. There's no... That they are literally like hemmed in on every way, and now there's no direction to walk to or to run away except through the water. So they're like, we're, we're going to die. Moses, did you bring us here to die? Now, here's what I want you to see, folks. Remember, we learned this in the last sermon of this sermon series. God led them there. Do not forget that. They were led by the pillar of cloud during day and of fire by night. God led them there because God had a plan. God wanted them to know and ultimately the Egyptians to know that he was the God that was all sufficient. In fact, what did the Egyptians eventually say once they realized it was too late? They came in. Their chariot wheels are starting to clog up. They're starting to feel this thing's not going good. And they say, we need to turn around and go back because the Lord fights for his people. Brothers and sisters, this is what I want us to know this morning. Our God is all sufficient. There is not a trial you will ever face that your God is not sufficient to see you through. And I know that we say that, but I'm telling you folks, we don't often believe it. When we come face to face with our trials, we don't often believe that our God is all sufficient. And fear grips our hearts, but over and over and over and over again, the Word of God says, fear not, fear not, fear not. And this is a lesson that God will bring us to learn. He will lead you to the Red Sea so that He can part the Red Sea. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And listen to me carefully when I say this. Even if he doesn't, he has already destroyed the power of death. So what's the worst that can happen? Can I tell you, uh, uh, share a story with you this morning? First of all, since being saved, I personally have never really been scared of death. But I didn't really look forward to it, and I didn't have the right perspective on it until an event happened in my life a few years back. One of the reasons I've never shared this event is because I don't want to discourage people from going to Honduras. Because Honduras is awesome, and if you haven't been, you need to go. Literally, we have taken hundreds, plural, hundreds of people into Honduras. And what I'm about to tell you you has happened to like three or four of us. I got really, really sick. And what I believe happened to me, I believe that I got dengue. That's what I think. Bit by a mosquito or something. It was not food sickness. 
And we were scheduled to drive back to the big city on Friday morning. We always do. It's about a four-hour drive through the mountains. If, if you get motion sickness, it's not the best drive of your life. But I deal with motion sickness anyways. Friday morning early at like 3 a.m., I knew that something was really wrong. Some, I just I could feel something was off. And at 5 a.m., I got up, I went to the bathroom, and on the way back, my body literally seized like a seizure, and I lost control of my body. My uh, muscles tensed up. It was as if somebody else had control of my body and did something to it to make it hurt in a way I had never hurt in my life. And all my body could do was respond by curling up like a baby and literally falling over. That's what I did. And I knew then something's wrong. This isn't like the flu coming on. This is, this is not good. This continued to happen for hours. About every 10 to 15 minutes that would happen to me. And I literally thought to myself, you might die. And this is not a super spiritual thought, but I also thought, I wonder if I'm contagious. Should I tell the team or not? Like, because if I'm going to die, I'd like to go home and die at home instead of die here. And so should I get on this plane or not? Like, yes, I thought that thought. Your pastor is not always super spiritual. Give me a break. I was really sick. And I started thinking, like, what if I did get to a doctor if it was possible for them to help me? I thought, I wonder if I get to a hospital here if they will be able to help me or not. Like, if they don't have the ability to help somebody that's as sick as I am right now. I thought, man, if I could get back home, it would be better. And then I really did to think, you know, I did begin to think, what if I was contagious? But I'm telling you here before you and the Lord, I didn't believe I was. I could tell that what I had wasn't like some normal sickness coming on. I, I really believed that in my mind and my heart, but I thought it was life-threatening. And I laid there, and because I didn't know what to do, I was praying to the Lord, like, what should I do? I got, we got a decision to make. The team's supposed to leave here in like three hours. And I, I heard the Lord speak back to me these words. Real simple. You're not going to die. I'm not done with you yet. Now, if you don't believe the Lord speaks to people, I don't know what to tell you. It wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't some noise in the room. I'm just telling you, I heard it in the depth of my soul, that exact response to the prayer that I had prayed. You're not going to die. I'm not done with you yet. And in that moment... I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew I was going to be okay. And I made up my mind I was coming home. And there was probably some of you here that were there for that trip, and you remember, I was a miserable, puny, weak little man on that way back. Oh, man, I was horrible. It's the worst, being with a team. I'm supposed to be the team leader. I'm like laying in the back of the van like I'm dead for hours. I tried to be a trooper. We finally made it there, and we, we go eat as a team when we get uh, there on Friday nights at Pizza Hut, and it's a big deal because it's the first American food the whole week. 
tried to be a trooper, and just the smell of that made me about throw up, and I had to go to the bathroom. I'm like, I'm going to go back to the van and be a baby. I hated it. But something really became real to me through that event in my life. And it's actually altered the way I see missions and altered the way I see what I want to do and where I want to go. What happened to me was it became a reality in my life that I recognized that my God is all sufficient and that I will die when he says it's time for me to die. I'm not afraid of death. And in fact, if death happens, I have totally got it satisfied in the depth of my heart. It must be God's time for me to go, and so I'm ready for it. I don't have to hide from it. I don't have to run from it. I don't have to try to put a bunch of perimeters in my life that keep me from ever being anywhere the sun's safe. My God is able and capable to part the Red Sea if he wants to. And if God chooses to let me die and it is my time to die, then I've got to settle in my heart that what's on the other side is better than what's here. Our God is all sufficient. And that is the practical lesson that God was teaching us throughout the ages at the Red Sea. There's nothing that he cannot do. There is never a situation where God can't make a path. So I ask you the question this morning. What is the thing in your life that you have doubted? God's sufficiency. What's the thing in your life that's causing anxiety? What's the thing in your life that's causing panic and worry and fear? And do you need to be reminded this morning that your God is all sufficient, that there is nothing that he cannot do. I want to close with this verse. Isaiah 43 and verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. What are the rivers that you are going through this morning that you needed God to remind you of? God will be with you through it. What do you need to be reminded of this morning? That God did not allow Jesus to go around death. He did not allow Jesus to avoid death, but instead allowed him to conquer through death. What do you need to be reminded of this morning? That God did not let the people of Israel go around the Red Sea. He did not let them avoid the Red Sea. He did not remove them from the conflict. Instead, he led them straight through the conflict. What is it this morning you need to be reminded of that your God has the power to lead you through? I think sometimes we are so terrified to move forward and to walk by faith. Because we're thinking that if we have the right faith and we love God, and we do it right, we're never going to have to go through hard times, and He's going to remove all the difficulties, and we're going to avoid conflict. No, 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 no. I'm telling you, folks, that's not what this book is taught from Genesis to Revelation. The devil wants you to think that so that when you come up against conflict, you're confused and you're mad at God. No, no, no. We go through the Red Sea. This morning... Child of God, what is it that God is calling you to trust Him about? What is it that God is challenging in your life that your fear and your anxiety and your panic and your worry, it's really unfounded? 
because your God is all sufficient. And if you're here this morning and you are not truly saved, you're still living in sin, and you know it. You have not repented of your sins, and you know it. You know it, and God knows it. There was a grave warning to us. The sea that delivered Israel ultimately became the same thing that destroyed the people of the world. What will you do if the judgment of God, the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus, what will you do if that is not applied to you before you die? And then comes your judgment. Can I tell you this morning that God loves you? If you're here and you're not right with God, you need to listen to me right now. God loves you. He loves you so much that He sent His own Son to pay your penalty, to die when you should have died, to bleed when you should have bled, because He doesn't want you to go to hell. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible declares that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. So listen to me this morning when I say it again and again and again. God loves you. God loves you. But He will not make you turn to Him. He will not make you repent. God says, I stand with arms wide open as a good God and I have proved my love to you. I want you to come freely. I want you to come because you believe I'm good. I want you to come because you trust in Jesus. I want you to come because you know that I love you and that I'm a good God. The Bible says it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. So if you haven't made that step this morning, I plead with you to come to Jesus. So what does that mean? Right, if you're truly not saved and you hear that statement, it's like, so what does that mean? Like, where is he at? How do I come to Jesus? How do I be saved? I'm going to do the best I can to explain it. Two minutes. We're done. First of all, I'm going to tell you the simple statement. It's going to be hard to wrap your mind around and believe it. But here's the truth. Here's how you be saved. You believe in Jesus. You're waiting for like, so what am I supposed to do? You, you are saved by believing in Jesus. That's how you're saved. You believe in Jesus. What does that mean? When you truly believe in something, you act upon it. When you really believe something... You have actions that indicate what you believe. So if you really believe in Jesus, the first thing you need to do is confess to Him, Lord, I'm a sinner. You know it, and I know it. I'm not right with you. You know it, and I know it. And 
I acknowledge it, Lord. I am a sinner. I confess what I've done. I confess who I am. Lord, you know, and I know, and I confess my sins. Number two, because I believe that he is good, because I believe that he died so that I might be forgiven, I ask his forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. God, cleanse me of my sins. And then I pray for God to make me new. God, give me a new nature. Give me a new heart. And God, because I believe in you, and I believe in your word, and I believe you are good from this moment forward, I'm going to live my life to follow you. Hey, and if you're not truly saved, you might not even know what that means totally. Following God. You know, all you have to know is in the depth of your heart, you're going to do it the best of your heart, the best you can. I didn't know what it meant. When I got saved, all I knew was I was going to do it. Somebody's going to have to teach me. I'm going to have to learn. I'm going to have to go to church. I'm going to have to learn what the Bible says. But whatever I learn, I'm going to do it. It was just a sincere heart of repentance. And this morning, when we say uh, it's as simple as believing on Jesus, it's this belief that is so sincere that it has actions that follow actions of repentance, actions of being remorseful for sin, actions of turning to Him and living for Him.